and have always known at some level that I'm out of sync historically with my time and place. I mean, I, you know, Ronald Reagan turned into an incredibly popular politician, but I always hated what he was doing to our sense of who we were and what our country should be. And, and so, you know, maybe following in the steps of the Minutemen, I've been in opposition to the powerful <laughs> uh, for as long as I can remember. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Bill McKibben thought he knew where he came from. He grew up in the tidy, affluent, and mostly white Boston suburb of Lexington, Massachusetts. As a teenager, he gave tours on the Lexington Battle Green, regaling visitors with tales about the opening shots of the American Revolution. He thought the United States was the greatest force for good in the world. Fifty years later, McKibben, now in his 60s, surveys the world from a very different perspective. He sees a world divided by racial and economic inequality, and he has dedicated his life to stopping the climate crisis, a man-made disaster that his generation and my generation have done much to create. The big question on McKibben's mind today is this, what the hell happened? Bill McKibben tackles this question in his new book, The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon. A graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. McKibben lives in Ripton, Vermont, and is the author of more than a dozen other books, including The End of Nature, which was the first book to warn the general public about the climate crisis. He founded the global grassroots climate campaign 350.org and is the recipient of the Gandhi Peace Award and the Right Livelihood Award, known as the Alternative Nobel. He is the Schumann Distinguished Scholar in Environmental Studies at Middlebury College. He recently launched Third Act, a new project to organize people over 60 for progressive change. Bill McKibben, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Well, a pleasure as always, David, to be with you. This new book of yours is a memoir as much of a place as of a person, you. Introduce us to your hometown, Lexington, Mass., and why you felt it merited a closer look than you gave it when you were growing up there. You know, I never I never wrote anything like a memoir, and really this isn't that much of one either, but in large part because where I grew up was so average and normal and ordinary in so many ways. Lexington was the kind of Ur suburb, uh, you know, 30,000 people just outside of Boston, the quintessential bedroom community. So middle American that I literally grew up halfway down a leafy uh, road called Middle Street. Uh, and, and, and of course, all American in profound ways because Lexington was styled itself the birthplace of American liberty, uh, the site of the first battle of the revolution. And indeed, for some years in junior high, my summer job was giving tours of the battle green, wearing my tricorn hat. Well, let's pick it up right there. You um, you were telling stories as a tour guide of the Lexington Battle Green, but as uh, a, an older person now, you've come to realize big parts of this story were missing from what you were telling. So tell us the short version of your tour guide spiel and what you now realize was missing from it. 
Well, so for me, I mean, I'm very glad that I did that in a way because I, I think it set me up for much of what I've spent my life doing. Um, I, you know, to me, it was always the story of the first battle against imperialism and colonialism in some ways any place on the planet. Um, and the Minutemen were real heroes. And, uh, and it taught me never to confuse uh, patriotism and 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 dissent. You know, the dissent was a patriotic, uh, not just possibility, but almost duty. So I was grateful for those stories. But yes, as we've learned more about American history over the last fifty years, many pictures, including that one, have uh, been shadowed and and darkened in lots of ways. The um. I'll give you an example. Uh, I was rereading the Paul Revere's account of his ride to Lexington and Concord uh, to warn of the approach of the British, as iconic uh, an account as there is in American history, because it's what Longfellow worked from when he wrote his great poem. Um, and Revere is—he's writing 20 years after the event. He's recording it, and he said, "Well, I was galloping along through Charlestown Common, and I came right into the part, spot where Mark hung in chains. And then the British, you know, two officers almost got me, and I had to wheel my horse and get a, you know, the the account continues. But the part that I'd never saw before, noticed before, was the offhand just." place description, uh, under the spot where Mark hung in chains. What was that about? took a fair amount of research to find because really no one's written about it, but it turns out that mm, 20 years before the revolution, uh, a slave in Boston named Mark Codman had had a particularly brutal master who he'd killed. Uh, instead of being tried for murder or manslaughter or whatever, they charged him with uh, treason. And he was body was not only drawn and quartered, it was placed in an iron cage, a gibbet, it was called, and uh, uh, left hanging uh, over Charlestown Common for decades. You know, the flesh rotted off the bones, and there they hung. And clearly it had become a, a, a landmark that everybody in New England knew because Revere was just used it offhandedly on the uh, the way you'd say, you know, next to next to the Hannafords or something. Um, um, but that sort of cast a different light on the Sons of Liberty, on the fight for freedom, on the, you know, uh, to be reminded that that was also part of that place and time uh, was a good way into sort of having to think harder about uh, how that story about race had played out over the subsequent 200 and some years, too, including in places like Lexington. Liberal town, but not a diverse one. It is incredible to think of a story that is so mu so foundational and so much a part of the American mythology that you could hardly find the actual account yeah. of the black people involved in the story of Lexington. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and truth be told, you can hardly find a black person in Lexington. Uh, not when I was there and not now. Not because of uh, overt 
segregation, at least by the time that I'd come along, uh, it had become a liberal town, a town that voted for George McGovern in 1972, a town where Martin Luther King had been welcomed in the 60s, but a town that also uh, took its commitment to suburbanization <laughs> seriously uh, and voted down a referendum uh, when I was 10 uh, to have even the most modest of an affordable housing development in town. Um, because, you know, at some level, what is a suburb? It's a collection of homes that appreciate in value. Uh, and I don't think anyone was willing to take any chances with that appreciating in value part. Well, let's talk about that. Suburbs don't become the way they are by chance, as you discovered when you went back to learn a piece of your community's history about how it came to be that there's no affordable housing in town. How did that happen? Well, they, there was, in the 60s in Boston, there was a, a move to try and uh, uh, integrate the suburbs to one degree or another. They started voluntarily busing kids out from Boston to suburban schools, uh, and and places like Lexington, some people anyway, began trying to figure out how to make the town more diverse. Lexington had something called the wonderfully named uh, Suburban Responsibility Commission. Um, and they decided that part of their suburban responsibility was to have some affordable housing, which means, of course, some housing that didn't look like all the other houses in Lexington, each with its own driveway and backyard and whatever. If you're going to have affordable housing, it's going to be uh, grouped together in units somehow. Um, and so there was a proposal put forward for 100 units of this. And... Uh, Everybody, every town official came out in favor of it, the planning board and the select board. And uh, the town meeting voted in favor of it. Lexington had a representative town meeting, so 230 people representing the 30,000 people of Lexington. All the ministers in town were in favor of it, on and on and on. Um, but the people in the neighborhood where it was going to be built petitioned to have a referendum uh, in Lexington. And uh, so they did. And when people actually went into the voting booth by a secret ballot to make their voices known, uh, it went down to defeat two to one. As the newspaper said the next week, um, um, if there's some actually some need for affordable housing, let us henceforth go very cautiously and slowly <laughs> down this path. And really, Lexington, like most of the suburbs, never really did go very far down that path, um, in large part because uh, it kept getting richer and richer and richer, and property values got higher and higher, and it got harder to do anything like that. Well, one of the things I love about your book is you take the stories, you know, we talk today about structural racism, systemic issues it's really hard for a lot of people to understand systems, which by their nature are. Um, but you take it down to the level, for example, of your house. Mm. Tell us the story of your house and what it teaches us about wealth accumulation, yep. race, and class. Yeah, so if you want to understand how it is that the wealth gap between black and white in America keeps widening, 
uh, it's worth understanding uh, how most wealth got accumulated, which was with the appreciation of property values. So my parents bought that house on Middle Street in 1970 for $30,000, which would be roughly $200,000 in today's money. When it was sold last last year uh, or year before, uh, it went for a million dollars. So there'd been an $800,000 appreciation, not based on anything that was done to that, basically still the same house. It was just if you'd happened to be, uh, you know, been able to hop on that escalator at the bottom, you could ride it right straight up. But in order to do that, you had to have $30,000 in 1970, which for all the reasons that we can recount about American history meant white people, not black people. Uh, uh, and and I will add that the escalator the escalator doesn't even really stop there. As soon as somebody bought it for a million dollars, they tore it down and on this small footprint built a uh, something that looks like a cross between a junior high school and a medium security prison. I mean, it's, you know, so so I'm afraid the escalator continues to work. Uh, in fact, it seems to be accelerating. Living the dream. Um, that issue of generational wealth is so central to the story of segregation in America, of what has happened, how it came to be that white and black America have proceeded along different paths. And when we speak of the structural racism structure, that is it right there. I think it's why I think it's one of the reasons, truthfully, why there's so many people who are so uh, scared about, you know, that somebody might teach whatever we're calling it now, critical race theory, or, you know, just talk about American history in these terms in schools. I don't really think it's because they're afraid of freaking their kids out. I think it's because everybody feels some level of um, guilt over this that they do not want to really have to deal with in their own way. Well, and there is a practical place that it leads to, which is the question of reparations. And what does that look like? Of, of some kind of repair of some kind. Yes, the kind of, um, uh, you, you know, the sort of, I, I think at this point, majority opinion on this is, uh, well, that was all in the past, you know. But um, I quote someone in the book as saying, you know, uh, let bygones be bygones is not really that noble a sentiment if you if you won, <laughs> you know, if if you were if you were the one who came out on top. You, uh, I want to get to um, you know the the title of your book, the flag, the cross, and the station wagon. Right now we're in the flag phase, yeah. and of course I couldn't help but um, recall the Huey Long quote. Uh, when fascism comes to America, it will come wrapped in an American flag. Mm. Um, how'd that happen? How did the flag get well, expropriated? Truthfully, I, I mean, I, this is a place where I think progressives on the left have made a serious mistake over time. I think ceding both the flag and the Bible to the right wing is a real mistake. There are obviously things in both that that are... Are, as we've been discussing about American history, that have plenty of dark side and so on and so forth. But there are also things that are really powerfully and importantly progressive. I mean, uh, all its shadow parts taken, that fight on Lexington Green was about standing up for 
uh, uh, the proposition that people shouldn't be subjugated to a king, that they should be able to make their own decisions in their own places, you know, which was a very radical proposition and in certain ways remains one to this day. And so I, 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 it's one of the things that's, I, I, where I think um, uh, the left in America made a mistake in just deciding that the, that was the property of the right, because it's a potent and important set of symbols. Well, interestingly, I just came across a photo, a National Geographic photo uh, from Mississippi in the 1960s of a policeman wrenching away an American flag from an African-American child. And in the explanation of that, it was noted that in Mississippi in the 1960s, carrying an American flag was considered a left-wing signaling <laughs> because so real Americans carried a Confederate, Confederate flag. Confederate flag, yes. So that was the pro-Civil Rights Act crowd. Uh, so it hasn't, it's, it hasn't been that long. Yes. Well, look, I mean, uh, Dr. King was, uh, you know, as uh, uh, leaned very heavily for strategic, but also, I think, for, uh, you, you know, quite real reasons on American history as the bulwark of the civil rights movement. Um, um, his theory was that that uh, that American history needed to be extended to and include all people, um, which is probably a more powerful message than everything about American history is terrible, so we need to take it down and do something else, you know. Moving on to the cross. Mm. Um, when uh, we were uh, classmates in college together, but you began your day differently than I did. I learned <laughs> in reading the book, you were often going to services at church. Well, at Harvard, where we were, had a, I mean, it was, it, it, it one wouldn't want to overstate it. It was a 15 minute uh, 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 morning prayers every morning that had been going on since Harvard was founded in 1636 or whenever Harvard was founded. Um, and, uh, but yes, I, 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 I'd grown up going to church in Lexington and, and then enjoyed it immensely at Harvard where we had the truly interesting guy that I write about at some length in there, uh, um, man named Peter Gomes as the plumber professor of Christian morals and minister of the of the memorial church so but this is to say that spirituality has been important to you in your life you've been a sunday school teacher at one point in your life um what has happened to american christianity in our lifetime well that's an interesting story and again one i didn't really understand you know when i started on this project just the numbers are fascinating so in 1970 52% of americans belong to one of the mainline liberal protestant denominations they're presbyterians lutherans congregationalists uh, episcopalians uh, who am i missing here methodists so that's 52% of americans okay um uh now that number 50 years later is about 15% in those mainline denominations, and they're almost all really old. That's an incredible change in a very short period of time. And what happened? They were replaced to the extent that they were by evangelical Christianity, which followed the same path as our political history, i.e., 
we went, and in the same period, from a, a religious consensus that was had plenty of flaws, but was focused on the idea of community, on you know the idea of of uh, 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 of building a better community, of working in harmony in all kinds of ways, to to a evangelical Christianity that was mostly focused on the very individual and personal relationship with God uh, and had no use, no time for building a better community as we've seen. It became the ally of the exact same trend in our political life exemplified by Ronald Reagan and the move to a kind of hyper-individualized, privatized a uh, 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 political world where we gave up on the Depression era, World War II era, post-war era project of building uh, uh, an America that worked, provided a modest prosperity for everyone, and instead went to work on an America where the goal was to see if some people could get super rich and, and let market forces solve all problems instead of uh, uh, trying to see if we might be able to solve them together. You recount a story where, as a college newspaper reporter, you actually took a trip to Praise the Lord Ministries. This was the church of Jim and Tammy Baker, uh, one of the first of the, you know, multi-million dollar televangelist empires. Uh, What did you see when you got there? Well, Heritage USA, which they built, was at the time, I think the second biggest tourist attraction in America beside behind only Disney World. Um, and, and really, Disney World was more or less what it looked like. I mean, you know, rides and uh, hotels and a, a recreation of the upper room where Jesus had the Last Supper and they'd somehow found Billy Graham's house where he'd grown up and moved it, you know, brick by brick and reconstructed. I mean, it was, you know, all that. Um, um, and of course, it was um, it was mostly grift. Uh, there was a a giant sort of ziggurat of a headquarters, Crystal Palace, that you know where they did their broadcast from. But in the basement, there was a room with, in my memory, a hundred or two hundred women sitting at long tables, just slitting open envelopes and shaking out checks and prayer requests. And the checks went into you know, to the bank and the prayer requests went into the trash. And that was, that was, you know, uh, the PTL, uh, praise the Lord. Uh, so it, it was, um, I was glad I sort of saw early what direction that was all going to take. So you have the experience of being part of a New England church community as you grew up. What, what, is the appeal of the evangelical churches that has enabled them to become these enormous, whether they're grift machines, but they are enormously well, yes. popular. Well, because, I mean, there's something, I mean, it, I mean it's precisely the same appeal of, of sort of Reagan-era political life. You don't, you don't have a responsibility to anybody but yourself. Um, and that responsibility is, you know, in church terms, relatively easily taken care of. You know, you announce you're a Christian, perhaps you're born again in some ceremony, and then good to go. Um, there's no responsibility to 
the larger world, you don't have to try and deal with the difficult problems of, of poverty or the things that, you know, Jesus <laughs> insisted we were supposed to be dealing with. Uh, so, yes, it was much easier in that sense. Talk about the nexus of race and the evangelical movement. You quote one scholar as saying, uh, the best way to predict how often a white evangelical will go to church is to know his score on an index of racial feelings. The more racist, the more hours in the pews. Right. So the, what, these, what the sociologists have found is that either, either as a cause or a result of being in evangelical Christianity, people have developed um, a set of beliefs about the world, including a very strong belief that everybody's um, outcomes are the result of their own free will and their own hard work or not. So when you ask people, um, uh, when you tell people black people are much poorer than white people in this country, is that the result of them not working hard, or is it the result of uh, racism and a whole, you know, two hundred years of of structures that uh, evangelicals, by and large, say they don't work hard, uh, and if they did, everything would be okay. Um, and and so that I mean, which is part and parcel of that whole very personal, personalized view of religion. It's a one-on-one -on -one relationship between you and God uh, and a very personalized view of sort of political life that can't deal with the notion that there are, that, that history matters, that structures matter, um, um, that, uh, you know, facts matter. So, Bill, I want to move on to the station wagon, which is uh, your way of describing the suburbs generally. Um, we grew up in an era when suburbia was the dream. It was the American dream. It was the embodiment of everything a working American was supposed to strive for. But you say that it has created a nightmare. Well, so first thing to say is that it that it, it, there was was and is a, a much to be said for the kind of at least at the beginning modest prosperity that it promised, and it was a good world uh, in many ways. Um, but it was a uh, world, among other things, utterly dependent on, built around the automobile. That was its, you know, it, the American project since the end of World War II was mostly building bigger houses farther apart from each other. And that was only possible because we had this means to travel between them and move our stuff between them and so on, and that was the car. Um, and And we took the car absolutely for granted, and, and we loved it. I mean, you know, this when I say the station wagon, I mean, all kids piled in the back of them, uh, the far back in ways that would now get you arrested for child endangerment if the state police stopped you, you know, but was just, we took utterly for granted. We took, I just, we, the car was, I, as I say in the book, I, you know, it was well after college before I ever left the country, but I'd seen a lot of the country because we piled in the car for every vacation and just drove for hour upon hour down the relatively new interstate highway system. And when the time came to 
stop for the evening. My brother and I would go through the AAA travel guide and find the motel with a swimming pool. And then, and I, I don't know if you remember this, and some part of me says, says it must be impossible, but I think it's true. The other thing we looked for in the motel was if it had magic fingers, if it had a thing where you put a quarter. Of course, I remend, remember Magic Fingers, Bill. It was the only motels so worth staying in. We're, we're here with your daughter, who's Ariel, who's happily taping this, but it's too young to know about this. Ariel, you put a quarter in the bed, and the bed would then shake for a few <laughs> minutes. And it's hard to imagine at this late date that that was a highly desirable thing. But man, I you know, so so that was the that was the world that grew up in. Well. So the 1970s were the era when that world began to come in sharp conflict with sort of world geopolitics and physical reality, you know. Um, after, my, after my work in junior high as, the, uh, uh, as a tour guide, I started working really in the same years for the local newspaper as a reporter. And, um, and so I would... One of my jobs in the 1970s would be calling all the service stations in town every week to find out what hours they'd be open because as those first two oil shocks unraveled and there wasn't enough oil to go around, um, enough gas to go around, you know, there was rationing and limited hours and so on and so forth, really fairly reminiscent of the moment we're in right now. Um, uh, um, and... What was fascinating politically was that it, it, it wasn't really clear exactly how we were going to interpret this and what we were going to make of it. And Jimmy Carter, bless his heart, did his level best to try and make us understand that this was an important moment to make a different choice. I quote him at some length in the book from the speeches he gave during the energy crisis just because they sound so impossibly different from anything any American politician, even Bernie, would think to say today. Basically, he was saying, uh, uh, you know, things like, you simply can't uh, make a good life that's based just on consumption. Um, um, we've tried, you know, we, we really have to recognize limits. Um, um, you know, it, it was... Well, and of course, he came to personify this sitting in cardigan sweaters in a chilly white sweater or a sweater so so you could turn down the thermostats well he was mocked for it more to the point when we came to the election in 1980 uh he was beaten by ronald reagan in what I, i think and write in this book was the pivotal election of our lifetimes uh the moment in which we made the very fateful choice between that world of some kind of um, collective uh, uh, effort at at building a uh, working America and uh, just the idea that that wasn't our job. Our job was just each one of us to get rich. I mean, it was Reagan's, you know, favorite uh uh, slogan was government is the problem, not the solution. Of course, government's just the name for what we all do together to try and and make things work. Reagan's favorite laugh line, 
decade after decade, speech after speech, was the nine scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. You know, ha, ha, ha. I mean, some level we now realize that the scariest words in the English language are things like, we've run out of ventilators, or the hillside behind your house has caught on fire. But we can't shake the political habits that we started with Reagan. Uh, uh, Obama in 2020 said, you know what, even though I had 60 senators, I felt like I couldn't escape the kind of Reagan mold of the world. Uh, His influence hung so heavily, the idea that markets solved problems, governments didn't solve them. To his credit, Joe Biden is trying, I think, to shake us out of that. He's, I mean, <laughs> Joe Biden is so old that he went into the Senate in the years that I was, you know, describing. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and, um, and he's trying to bring us back there, but the Congress isn't having it, you know, because, well, because they came up in that other more privatized world. And, the larger setting of this is the elevation of, I mean, the triumph of Reaganism was in simplest terms, public is bad, private is good. Yep. And I just think about there is a straight line from Reaganism to how we have fared during the pandemic, which on a global scale, we are have the worst outcome in the industrialized world. Yes. So it's, it's very true, but let's don't Let's don't despair entirely. It's, I mean, one of the things that's that's good to note is the persistence of the desire of many Americans to do the right thing for the people around them. Two-thirds of Americans tried to do more or less the right thing during the pandemic. And here in Vermont, of course, the number was much, much, much higher because we have um, the highest levels of social trust in the country. We're the, we're the closest left Jimmy Carter in, you know, in America. Um, um, but it turns out that, you know, a third of people is enough to frustrate efforts at public health and enough to screw up most things, too, you know, especially when they're full of the kind of insane intensity that that they seem to be at the moment. Talk about the connection between the the world that you're describing and, it, and its creation over the last 50 years and the climate crisis. Well, so, I mean, I've spent my life, obviously, working on the climate crisis, and it has its most significant roots in that suburban suburbanization of, of the United States. The 4% of us who live in this country have produced 25% of the world's carbon dioxide. And most of that comes not from factories, but from big cars and big houses, that suburban explosion. It, it beats even the rapid industrialization of China over the last 20 years as the biggest puff of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Um, so our particular habits of mind that sort of came out of that suburban era are, are now written firmly in the geological record and and continue to make it extremely hard for us to make progress. The fact that gas prices have gone up continues 50 years on to dominate our political life and, and 
you know, now Joe Biden, who ran on protecting the climate, is busy off, you know, I mean, I, one feels for the guy, but there he is off having to kiss the ring of the king of Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, uh, in, in order to try and get some cheaper gas for a little while. Yeah. You often say that you've lost more fights than you've won, but you have won some. Um, you were a big part of stopping the Keystone Pipeline, for starters. As you look at the wins, because we don't want to go down the rabbit hole of despair here, what do you glean from the wins? What are the themes that you get from the things that have worked that you've been involved in? Well, so to some degree, campaigning, successful campaigning about stuff, movement building, um, um, is, you know, you have to win the argument, but you also have to win the fight. You have to be right on the data and the evidence and stuff, but you also have to figure out what it is about things that will move people to really go take action, put it on the, the line. Um, and part of that's a kind of plausible sense that, that, um, something might that a fight might succeed, and that if it did succeed, the success might be big enough to matter. So, the Keystone Pipeline was a good example of that. We were able to persuade people that this was really important, and and, and Jim Hansen said, you know, keep building out the the tar sands of Canada where this pipeline is coming from, and it'll be game over for the climate. You know, and people responded and and rallied to that. Um, but I think also that, and this goes to what we've been discussing, that things often work best if they're rooted in um, in people's memories, ideas, um, um, hopes. We're doing this organizing now uh, with this thing, Third Act, uh, for people over the age of 60. And... Uh, Part of that work is to try and remind people that they grew up in a moment of extraordinary and epic transformation in the 60s and 70s, the moment when we started taking women seriously as full parts of society, the apex of the civil rights movement, when the franchise was being expanded, not contracting, uh, uh, you know, the moment when we first began to think that perhaps wars were not the best way of solving problems. Um, the first Earth Day, significantly, and with it the passage of the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and things. And so part of the message at Third Act is reminding us that we're capable of doing this, that we've done things in the past and that it felt good to do them and do them together. And people have been responding to that in big ways. We've got tens of thousands of people signing up and going to work and um, and and Partly, of course, too, it's, um, um, you, you know, there's a certain amount of um, romance in any of thing that's working like that. In this case, with Third Act, um, you know, I mean, Ariel, fight me if you want to, but our generation had the best music there ever was. And so <laughs> it's um, it's been really good to have, you know, Carol King and, Bette Midler and Patti Smith and Neil Young and people, uh, uh, sort of icons of that fight, joining in and reminding people of the spirit in which, you know, things happened in their youth. You know, you've put 
our poor Arielle at a distinct disadvantage because she's pointing a mic only at you, so she can't answer. It's kind of like being at she the can't dentist. Fight. It's very good. When the dentist it's asks you something with the drills in your mouth, and all he can do is go, uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. But anyway. Well, um, I, I don't have a drill in her mouth. It must be said. So, I mean, it's not quite that bad. Um, you were last on the Vermont Conversation um, for uh, in March for a completely wacky idea that you had put out there and I yeah. indulged you by having you talk about it on the <laughs> airwaves and it was heat pumps for peace yes in which you proposed that uh, President Biden should invoke the Defense Production Act which I believe had last been invoked to create to, to make ventilators mm -hmm. um, to uh, create cheap heat pumps for Europe mm -hmm. uh, as a way of cutting the legs out from under Putin and the other petrocrats. Yep. Uh, it was a crazy idea. So uh, give us an update. Well, so good news here. Um, so we went to work. Uh, very smart people at a group called Rewiring America came up with an actual plan, not just a, you know, op-ed kind of column. Um, and we started to work at Third Act, and we had people write thousands of letters uh, which turned out to be, the, by the way, the ability of older people to still remember how to put a letter in an envelope and stick a stamp on it is kind of a superpower because in an age of just endless email, they actually apparently, you know, really stand out. And uh, alongside us, a wonderful 11-year-old uh, from the Bronx, uh, no, from Brook someplace in, deep in Brooklyn, uh, uh, Lillian Fortuna, uh, uh, set up a website and started collecting petition signatures from people her age for this project. And what do you know, within about 90 days, so two weeks ago, the Biden administration said, okay, we will invoke the Defense Production Act and start building heat pumps. They're not, at the moment, I think, planning to send them to Europe. They're more thinking about doing them here, but that's fine. Oil is a globally traded commodity. If we can cut our demand here, uh, uh, that'll reduce the price that Vladimir Putin's able to get for his oil and and the leverage he has with it. And, and hopefully it's the beginning of many other sort of similar steps along the same way. Uh, it's a small step and by no means decisive in either the battle in the Ukraine or the battle over the climate. But uh, the good news is he can do it at least in part without having to get Joe Manchin's permission. So, you know, thank heaven he did it, and hopefully it'll nerve them up to do some more things like that. So what might this do? What, what will be the practical effect? Of well, it? so America has a, a heat pump, which is great technology. I have, Sue and I, you know, heat and cool our home in Ripton with one. Um, um, it's basically just an air conditioner that also works in reverse. It takes the heat in the ambient air outside and uses it to heat your home uh, with electricity. And it's incredibly efficient compared to the open flame you have in your basement at the moment, you know, running your gas furnace. Um, and, and so the hope is that it will, it's one of the things that needs to quickly happen over the next few years if we're to meet the targets that the scientists have told us we must meet to have any hope of dealing with climate change. Well, most many of the world's air conditioner factories are here in the U.S., and they're perfectly capable of churning out lots of these things if there's some demand and some government support for doing it. 
And so just in the same way that in response, you know, the last time that fascist armies were on the march across Europe, we started spinning out tanks and planes and ships and things to deal with it. Uh, uh, we, we may need some of that this time to help Ukraine, but we need even more, lots and lots of, uh, you know, EV chargers and uh, air source heat pumps and uh, on and on and on to help us build the kind of world where simply having control of a lot of oil fields like Vladimir Putin does will no longer give you the power to terrorize entire continents. Part of writing a memoir uh, is the process of kind of making sense of your life, of pulling together different <laughs> strands of your life. Um, you doing a deep dive both into your own story and, in this case, the American story. I wonder what insights you have now into all of that. Well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I, I know that I'm, and have always known at some level, that I'm a- out of sync historically with my time and place. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan turned into an incredibly popular politician, but I always hated what he was doing to our sense of who we were and what our country should be. And, And so, you know, Maybe following in the steps of the Minutemen, I've been in opposition to the powerful <laughs> uh, for as long as I can remember. And clearly that had something to do with those lessons I was absorbing in that church on the edge of Lexington Green and and so on. Um, um, I, I hope that someday the story of this country goes back to being what I thought the story of this country was was I was young. I hope that we take the steps to reclaim um, American history and make it live up to the ideals that it professed and that that struck me about it so much when I was young. Um, And that's an earnest hope. It may be uh, uh, an impossible one at this late date. We shall see. But um, at least for the moment, I've continued to, uh, you know, engage in that fight. And this, um, it's great fun at this third act work we're doing to have some company of like-minded people from the same time and place. Right now, a lot of people are struggling with despair. Mm. So much in the world, whether it's the war in Ukraine, the climate crisis, the racial polarization, the gun violence. The fact that that many of our countrymen stormed our nation's capital, killing policemen in order to stop the counting of ballots, yes? Yes, yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like yeah. the fact that democracy is truly on a precipice. Yes. And none of us really can say with any confidence that it's going to yeah, it, make it off the cliff, yeah. So... Uh, I, I hope I haven't set you up to fail here <laughs> with that, but I would like to end on what gives you hope. Well, I mean, I don't always feel an extraordinary amount of hope, but there are a couple of things. Um, one is that we really have, I mean, it's been wonderful to watch movements come together over the last decade. I've been working hard in this climate movement, which didn't exist 15 years ago. Uh, But then starting with 350.org in some ways, um, 
um, we've managed to build sort of big, big global movements that are now much bigger than anything we imagined. You know, the Greta Thunbergs of the world and things who have done work miracles. So that's encouraging. Um, it hasn't, they haven't won yet, but they've put up a stiff challenge to the powers that be. And then, of course, um, it, it, it's a great privilege to get to live in Vermont. Um, we're far from perfect. We've got m many things that we need to work on. But to be in a place that, by and large, people look out for each other and take care of each other and in uh, ways that minimize um, um, hatred and division um, um, and sort of maximize uh, community and fellow feeling, um, I don't know whether that I don't know whether that can shift the direction the world's going in, but it's very much the place I'm glad to be hanging out while all the rest of this stuff is going on. I must say. Well, Bill McKibben, I want to thank you as always for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. A great pleasure, David, and a great pleasure, Ariel. Thank you very much. A special thanks to Ariel Goodman, who was our audio engineer on this interview.